You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is February 15th, 2024 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And I thought that I would talk a little bit about the nature of forming reality. I have had uh, several questions about it lately. I always use the sort of Buddhist rubric of you have the capacity to sense the object that can be sensed when there's contact. The consciousness of that sensing experience arises um, one of the things about talking about meditation in English is that we use the same words for to mean different things. Consciousness is one of them. I'm going to use it to mean a few things. But this particular consciousness is just the consciousness of the sensing experience. This is unknown to the conscious self-experience, which is also a sensing experience. It's just that availability of the sensing capacity and the object which matches that sensing capa uh, capacity when there's contact, a sensing experience arises. So you have the retina of the eye, and if a photon hits it, it activates. You have an eardrum that if a vibration hits it, it activates that capacity. You have skin that covers the body. If there's a, a interaction that has a temperature to it, that the skin can react to it. It reacts. It has a pressure sensitivity. You have the capacity to taste something. You have the capacity to smell something when a tiny particle lands on the membrane uh, that is sensitive to that, it reacts. And then you also have the capacity of mind in uh, the West, we don't really talk about mind that much, but in the, in the Buddhist philosophy, it's an important thing. And I've said this a million times, I think, probably by now, but in the West, we're conditioned by the culture to understand the nature of reality based on how um, we hold the philosophy of that. Aristotle, um, I like to call him one of the old Greek guys, uh, understood the, the capacity to sense reality as a taking in of a complete picture of what's around us and creating internally a working model which we use to navigate the world around us, which is very different from uh, the Buddhist conception of this. Was the door. In uh, the Buddhist conceptualization of this, the mind goes around scanning the environment for sensing experiences that are of its preference, which is already this expression of conditioning. We come into the world uh, pretty much a blank slate beyond what is 
instinctual. So this whole evolution and the way that that evolution makes the body sensitive to some things and not to others, survivable in some conditions, but not in others. It is um, not only the biology that, that's so pertinent here, but it is also the culture in which we're born. I think for, for most of us uh, who don't uh, pay attention to these small activations and the way that they're made, uh, the dominant experience is cultural. First, we begin in the family system. Uh, and then we when we move beyond the reach of the family into the broader culture, so much of what what is it uh, what uh, we use as definitions for the meaningfulness of things comes from that. Um, experience uh, but it is also hard to uh, overstate the importance of the attachment conditioning early on in terms of how we form the sense of self and the, the sense of world but it begins with this habit of looking for things in the environment which we enjoy and prefer and ignoring the stuff that we don't and so we don't create these uh tableaus that we experience as reality, as a complete uh, neutral representation of what's happening. It is actually a representation of what's meaningful to us. Or if we can't find enough of these objects, uh, these mind moments that we select, uh, a sense of the absence of what's meaningful. So you may find yourself enjoying some environments and disliking other environments. Um, of course, in Buddhist philosophy, it isn't the thing itself, but the relationship to it always. But the environment is just the environment, and our relationship to the environment depends on our conditioning and whether we value the environment or we don't is dependent on that conditioning. The capacity to sense of... Uh, not everybody has the, the same capacity to sense the same sensitivities, the same uh, processing capacities. Um, so we're not talking about something that's universal. We're talking about something that is specific uh, to us individually, but also then uh, to our species of uh, creature. We have a habit in the human form of uh, valuing our perspective uh, as more important than all other perspectives, pretty much. <laughs> Whether this is true or not, I have no idea because we don't investigate anybody else's perspective either. Uh, how many uh, centuries have we known whales? Have we made any progress in understanding how they communicate? Uh, I remember watching those early uh, uh, anthropologic films, anthropology or biology of elephants that seemed to be telepathic in the way that they were communicating. And then sound recording became a thing and and um, it, it still seemed as if they made no communication at all. 
and then accidentally rewinding the uh, the audio uh, tape, they sped it up to the point where they could hear that there was actually some communication happening, but it was so far below our frequencies it never registered in terms of what we what we can hear. So we really have this very limited uh, sensing array that just takes a sliver of what's actually happening and we assemble uh, a reality that we prefer over all other realities from that. That's just really at the level of cosmic joke uh, at that point. So you have the capacity to uh, detect something, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling. If there's an object that's sensitive to that capacity, uh, of sensing and there's contact between the two, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises. It's then evaluated for urgency. Does it need immediate attention? Does it not matter whether we ever get to it? Is there time for a uh, pleasant experience? The science on that, pretty good. Three-eighths of a second to make that sensing journey for urgent material, a half a second for Pleasant material, almost everything is categorized as not important and never makes it into the queue to know anything about it. Pleasant experience requires twice the duration of the sensing experience and twice the intensity to register. So we really are biased toward uh, dangerous things. And that's a, the evolutionarists think that's about protecting the body so that we can keep going. That makes sense to me. There's a cue, so it's kind of like a bottleneck of information moving up this chain, this uh, conveyor belt of sensing experiences. When the sensing experience, that capturing of the sensing experience, hits the top and it's compared to the perceptual database. And that perceptual database, if there's an entry in it that matches closely enough, that whole thread of meaning attaches uh, to the present moment. And it moves out of the unconscious or unknown to the self experience into a, a conceptual reality that is then experienced by that conscious selfness that you may know. Because the conscious self experience is always arising based on the conditions of the present moment, it always seems fresh and it always seems to be the self experience that we have. And it's easy to identify that self-experience as the same experience that we've always had of ourselves in each moment that it has arises. It creates a, a kind of continuity of framework for operating in the world. Uh, we are uh, uh, pack animals. I know that... Uh, being the apex predator on this planet, we don't necessarily like to think of ourselves that way. We often talk about ourselves as herd animals. 
But we are decidedly not prey on this planet. We are the apex predator. So that would be a pack. And we're, we have the, the neurostructures that are common in species that uh, interact in complex social ways. So that we really have this biology that uh, requires us to be effective in navigating social spheres. If we can't do that, then our, our nervous systems get dysregulated. We can often find ourselves um, in the pain of social isolation or social ostracization, which actually produces a kind of physical pain. The, the human body doesn't really differentiate too well between physical pain and emotional pain. If you come home and you've had a hard emotional day, you can take two Advil and it has an effect of relieving that because of the nature of the body. I think it's one of the reasons why uh, substances are, are, are things that we take to uh, dispel that uh, painfulness of being in the world, that emotional pain, existential pain. One of the things to begin to pay attention to is that moment of the creation of reality. If we don't pay so much attention to it and don't uh, understand the underlying causes of why we make the reality the way that we do, it's very easy for us to consider it to be an accurate representation of what's happening. And that actually isn't what the body-mind system does at all. It doesn't collect all of that data to create a, a model of what's happening. It doesn't have the capacity to store that much information so that we could uh, pull out uh, or, or we could understand the past in the relationship to the present. Uh, it's It would be just a an overwhelming avalanche of data that we would have to be able to manage. And so we don't do that. We don't uh, remember much beyond what a circumstance means to us. So you're remembering something happening, you're remembering a conversation that you're having, and in the moment as it plays out in the mind, you hear you uh, what you say to the person that you're talking to, you hear what they say to you, it all appears pretty clear and it appears pretty accurate, but we don't remember Don. We make it up in the moment uh, based on our uh, understanding of how people tend to talk to us and what it meant to us. So in each moment, we're recreating this, not remembering what happened. You can't actually say with any accuracy, I remember what happened. You can say pretty well what it meant to you, but not what happened. You can't remember what somebody said, but you can remember what somebody said meant to you. And then you recreate it in the way that um, you think it happened. Open the door again for Lucy. 
we go to the videotape, right? <laughs> you ever see that happen? Oh my God, it's not at all what I thought happened. <laughs> it's mostly sports replay. Remember when that started to happen? The uh, video replay and then the, the umpire's calls were either right or wrong, depending on the angle of the camera. Um, was he clipping or not clipping? Did she hit it in the line or out of the line? Did you ever find yourself just denying the reality of the videotape because it just isn't exactly how you experienced it? <laughs> Wait a minute, that can't be. Um, I was looking at some pictures uh, of me uh, 10 or 12 years ago. And I distinctly remember looking at those pictures 10 or 12 years ago and thinking how old I looked in them. But when I looked at them today, I thought, oh, my God, I look so young in those pictures. <laughs> what is that? The relationalness of it, right? That database that we use to create meaning is very complex, very nuanced, and and uh, and when we associate that thread to what's happening in the present moment, it is a it, it, if it's an old thread that goes way back, it's a lot of meaning that it then associates with the present moment. Um, maybe you're you're like me and you like novel experience. And the reason that novel experience uh, is so enjoyable is it doesn't come with that that whole litany of of meanings. It's fresh and 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 more in line with the way that um, my thinking process is now than that that whole string into the past. Um, the first time that this happened to me, it, it seemed quite vivid. Uh, I had been sitting um, uh, at uh, the Santa Monica Zen Center, which is in uh, Santa Monica. It's on Colorado and an alleyway between 11th and 10th. And we would sit uh, um, Yaza. So we'd all show up at about uh, 10.30 in the evening, and then we would sit until... 5 30 in the morning and then we would sleep and then there there was a, a retreat that would start at uh 8 30 in the morning so there was a gap between 5 uh, 30 and 8 30 about uh, three hours or so uh and we would sit all day and i remember having done that and coming out of the the meditation center and really in one of those not very solid, buzzy meditation states that you can get into from really high concentration and a lot of flow. And as I was, when I, as I hit Colorado Boulevard, a 57 uh, T-Bird took the corner. It was turquoise and it had a white roof on it, the hard top. And if you remember that particular year, there's a lot of chrome at the front. So it's sort of those eyes with that big chrome smile. And as soon as I looked at it, my mind, which was clear at the time, 
noticed that one of the references that I used to identify it was my grandmother's 52 DeSoto. She had a, 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 a sedan, which was robin's egg blue, which was not the same shade of turquoise. Um, and she was a very proper woman so that she always had gloves on when she was driving. She always had these little pillbox hats with the, uh, do you remember that where you were out in the 50s, women often wore these hats that had a, a net that came down and covered their face. That was my grandmother. And she always wore a heavy floral perfume and she wore a lot of makeup and bright lipstick. And I remembered uh, in a flash from the, the sun hitting the chrome on that bumper, sitting in the car in the front seat of that DeSoto and the, the whole dashboard being really heavily chromed in these big uh, nozzles or vents that were the air conditioning and these big knobs that you could turn the air conditioning on. Air conditioning in cars was really unusual at, at that time. And the steering, the two-tone steering wheel was uh, quite amazing. But what was interesting to me was that the the that slowness of having sat for a long time and been highly concentrated it was easy to see these images stack up these these uh, associated meanings stack up on the present moment and in that moment of walking out of the alley onto the street i was filled with the emotional experience of my relationship to my grandmother which isn't was not in what was happening in that moment. Are you able to follow what I'm trying to get at? That in each moment, because we're really experiencing the meaningfulness of it, and because we're identifying uh, what's happening in the present moment based on references to this database, there's a lot of information that fills in the whole richness of the experience of the present moment. Christian? So do you did you take that moment as like any time you might see that thunderbird rolling down the street like you'd have that kind of reaction and you just weren't realizing it or there was something especially vivid about the way that you were reacting because of the the meditative state so like was it illustrating that this is something that's that might always be going on for you but you're just not aware of, aware of it or was it that you were especially um, open to such a to such a reaction at that moment. My mind was settled and clear enough that I could see that moment unfolding, but it isn't to say that every moment unfolds in a similar way. Every moment unfolds based on the conditions of that moment, and because every moment's conditions are different from every other moment's conditions it's likely that the next representation won't include the same collection of, of uh, meanings that that particular moment does. It's easy for me to see. I'm more likely to remember that moment in seeing a T-bird than I am to remember my grandmother without that moment of remembering, if that makes sense. Okay. And when you're not so clear, 
you don't notice all of the the different meanings, the different sensing experiences stacking up. You're having the meaning uh, that is conscious, self-conscious available to you, not necessarily the whole stack that, that's uh, caused that meaning to arise in that. So there isn't a learning of the pattern of the way that you create conceptual reality. Each moment of conceptual reality is created based on the conditions of the present moment. Views, of course, are a little bit uh, different than that. The attachment views, for instance, are very predictable depending on the conditions, but that's a filter that, that goes in between the ultimate reality of pure sensing before you've defined it and what you make it into. Um, when we were kids, uh, my dad was from a... Uh, small town in Michigan called Cadillac. Or that is to say, my, my grandmother's family was. And so uh, he liked to go there. Uh, and in the winter, we would go. Uh, there was a ski lodge called Cabrafe Lodge, which was near there. And we would go skiing and we had these goggles that were sort of molded uh, plastic. So this would have been in the early 60s. <clears throat> so sort of uh, that kind of, I always associated with them with spy movies as a kid, uh, but uh, and they were orange. And you'd put them on and you'd recognize immediately that um, the whole world looked different. But then you'd ski down the hill and you'd ski down the hill and then you'd forget that you were wearing the, the goggles and the world just appeared to be that way. And then uh, you'd take them off and of course the whole world's color balance would then shift back into the way that it looks without that color filtration. And so you have a sense of that the nature of the filter of different things, but then um, can you detect the equanimous mind where the reflection of the ultimate sensing experience, just that raw data translates into conceptual reality without much distortion and know that well enough to know that when that's not happening, there's a distortion, there's a filter, a view in place, and then can you track what that view is, that making sense. Um, and one of the things about this that's uh, important to understand is that so many of these views establish themselves before the self-conscious uh, experience arises. And so as the sense of self, uh, as the the audience or the monitor of what's happening arises, these views are already operational, already in place. And this is particularly uh, impertinent around the attachment view. The attachment review arises, and the whole foundation of conceptuality is built up around it. And because it preceded the 
uh, selfing experience, it appears to always have been there that it that it is a, a, an unadditional part to the creation of conceptual reality. That's it's so pernicious in terms of the way that it affects things that it, it really takes a lot of attention and focus to be able to begin to learn the way that it changes the experience of meaning in the present moment. Once you begin to catch on to it and you can begin to recognize the patterns of distortion, um, you have that um, it becomes obvious in a, in a way. But this is going back to your, your question, uh, Christian, that we don't create so much the uh, experience or the content of conceptual reality uh, over and over again. It really is dependent on the, the combination of the conditions of the present moment but the distortions are are more consistent, and those are things that can be recognized. Makes sense. When I was uh, beginning to do this kind of exploration in my practice, uh, I I began it with the 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 divine abodes, in particular with a loving kindness practice or meta practice. And I was trying to understand metamind and what that was like, but really I couldn't do it. I, I um, the way that I really discovered all of this was by uh, turning toward a mind state that was readily available <laughs> and fairly constant. And for me, that turned out to be angry mind, and I could uh, easily detect in other ways in the body and in my uh, emotional uh, uh, reactivity uh, when anger was present. And so I began to notice uh, really just the way that the room appeared to me when my mind was angry. And then uh, noticing when my mind wasn't angry, how the room appeared. And in noticing that the room appeared quite differently uh, in each of the different states, I began to recognize the way in which the, the anger mind distorted the perception of the experience of the present moment. And then I could begin to see the kinds of patterns of distortion in other environments uh, besides just the, the, the room where I was sitting. And then in recognizing how the, the, the views distort perception, starting with anger, then I was able to see other views, uh, or that is to say, recognizing patterns of distortion that were not anger, and then being able to identify uh, what those views might be, and then in, in turn, uh, recognizing the view of loving kindness, not making sense. When the mind is still, clear, and equanimous, what does it look like? When you can recognize a particular state that you're in, 
than viewing the same experience, the same environment, what does the environment look like then? In Los Angeles, for instance, on a bright sunny day, the place looks uh, vibrant and, and uh, colorful and warm. And then when it's overcast, it looks shabby and run down. <laughs> Might be a way to do it. And you detect when the mind is clear and bright and when the mind is overcast. George, um, yeah, so this uh, relates back to the last thing you were talking about, this overcast, the glasses. I have the, but here, like in San Francisco, for example, things that has happened to me in the past has made my feeling of San Francisco negative. And I realize that I see that, but it just feels a part of the perception itself. I mean, I can see it, but it's hard for me to change it just by seeing it. So you're bringing up something that is even more complex than uh, what you've talked about so far. But you have the capacity to sense the object that can be sensed when there's contact, the consciousness of sensing experience arises, it's evaluated for urgency, it's compared to the perceptual database, there's an entry that's close enough in the perceptual database, that thread of meaning is attached. But in that thread of meaning, of course, is the expectation of what the outcome of a situation will be. So uh, in the moment, as conceptual reality is unfolding, what's in front of you are all of the possible choices that you could take. But when the view is quite strong and it includes a, a foregone conclusion of what's possible from that array of possibilities, you pick the one that's likely to lead to the conclusion that you think is inevitable. And then it unfolds in a way that then reinforces your belief in your perception of what's happening. That making sense. So then what you understand is uh, in the forming of the intention to take the action and tracking the outcome of the action that you take is uh, understanding whether or not you're caught up in the idea that this is uh, this pos these are the only possibilities, the other possibilities don't exist. If you can do that in time, you'll be able to recognize a, a wider range of possibilities to choose from. And then in choosing them, of course, create a whole different outcome, which then changes the habit of expectation. I feel it's not so much about choosing at this moment for me. It's just about keeping the meta mind, the the mind state on all the time to change it instead of, oh, I have multiple options from my own perceptual database that I can choose from. It's or, it right. feels like it's already even before I, my sense of self, that's very, actually, that's very true that, yeah, 
most of that all happens prior to the sense of self. Right. Yes. The the moment of just before you commit to the action is when the self-experience arises. And it gives you the veto power of not doing it. But it doesn't give you the uh, um, the choice of what to do. Mm. If you veto, then you can take a different choice. So that's what the, the this uh, meditation training is really about: uh, is to um, really be sensitive to the way that the the habit of creating reality unfolds. Particularly if there's if you're not mindful of what what it is that, that's unfolding, so you don't interrupt the the habit of choosing over and over again the same outcome. This also brings up another aspect of all of this, which is the imagination. It isn't that the database develops from actual experience. So our understanding of the meaning that we make out of the experience that's happening is the formation of the database. But it is ordinary to have unique experiences which do not have entries that match well in the database. And then we have the capacity of imagination to assign meaning to the experience of the present moment. One of the things that happens in childhood, particularly when you have uh, painful experiences or the things that you want are uh, out of reach or out of reach of the family system that you grow up in is we begin to limit the capacity to imagine that we can have them. I, I like to call it pinching off the capacity to imagine. Um, this in childhood is more economical because it's less painful to be in a world where you don't imagine that you, you uh, can have things. You don't imagine that you want to have uh, things or experiences or connections. But when you come into your adult life where your agency is very different uh, or perhaps very different than what it was in childhood, where uh, those things may be available to you if you could think that you wanted them, but you can't think you wanted them because you restricted your imagination, part of this is then going to be seeing in what areas you, you don't believe that th this is possible. In Buddhism, we would call this limiting beliefs begin to open them up and explore what's possible and what isn't possible now that uh, you're older and you have a different kind of agency than you had when you were a child and uh, dependent on a child's mind in relationship to uh, adult caregivers. Is that making sense? So all of this is this process of understanding it. So in meditation, we uh, in Vipassana meditation, of course, we pull this apart each sensing experience, how the meaning is assigned to the sensing experience, what those threads in the database are. On the Vipassana side, we really, sorry, on the meta side of things, so we're teaching this meta-Vipassana approach, we really begin to explore the nature of views and mind states and really begin to develop agency so that we can control pretty well 
the mind state that arises, if an afflictive mind state arises, we have the capacity to change it into a beneficial mind state. All of that making sense. We have the capacity to sense the object that can be sensed when there's contact, a sensing experience arises, and this could be many sensing experiences in all of the different sense gates uh, coming together in a moment where they're uh, patterned and compared to the database and uh, a sense of meaning is uh, uh, established and then the self experiences the meaning of that. So the imagination piece, you're saying it's pinched off only towards the positive side. I guess negative side seems like still on and not many people? Well, it, it's pinched off uh, around things that uh, are painful to experience. If you can't get them or they repeat, things like that. We are biased toward uh, dangerous experiences. And so, uh, a lot of times in uh, adverse childhood conditions, or uh, doesn't have to be totally dramatic, we tend to get better at managing and regulating uh, negative experience. We still have to regulate positive experiences in the same way. So you could have a positive experience that exceeds the window of tolerance in the same way that a negative experience does. And then you have the family system for how to regulate positive experiences. So I think one of the difficulties in my family was that we tended to regulate positive experience with fear so that something positive would happen. But as soon as it got intense enough, it would be translated into the afflictive experience of fear through self-generated emotion regulation strategies. Uh, and so... Uh, what would have been obviously better would be as if we could have uh, developed the capacity for much more intense positive experiences, but that if we did have an experience that was positive, that exceeded our capacity to hold the intensity of it, we had a beneficial strategy that we could employ to regulate the positive strategy so that everything didn't get converted into uh, afflictive experience. So that's an examination, of course, of the, the the systems of emotional regulation that you use in identifying the, that constellation of strategies that you use in your family. Most of the time, we don't really learn additional strategies once we move beyond the family system, unless we're in an intimate relationship where we actually can experience somebody's emotional regulation patterns closely enough that we then can develop the capacity to use them. So sometimes it's nice to go home and, and examine how everybody's regulating themselves so, so that we can have that experience. You do want to suppress the negative uh, strategies and replace them with positive ones. So we're always talking about meditation, 
strategies for emotional regulation, loving kindness practice, noting feeling states practice. So I think that's enough uh, of this chatter for tonight. What about uh, a Vipassana or uh, a meta meditation tonight? Which would you like? Meta. <laughs> we have one vote for Vipassana, one vote for Meta. Mario, do you want to be the tiebreaker? No. Trying to listen to myself and see. All right. We'll go ahead and settle in. All right, let go of the meditation. Any comments or questions about that? So uh, Saturday is the second day of a second half day of a three half day meditation and addiction. We're going to talk about the third module, persistent negative emotion, which is really talking about somaticized emotion, and then begin the conversation of persistent difficult relationships, which is the attachment piece in relationship to addiction. Um, we're going to do uh, a level one coming up, I think, in April. Um, we have a level two starting in August. Uh, we have uh, the first intensive meditation and addiction class that we've done. Um, this is a three-month class, which meets three times a week for an hour. So Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at uh, six to seven, we're going to go through the four modules in an intense way so you have a good understanding of what that is. Um, that should be coming up on the website soon. I'm doing two retreats in May. One is in uh, outside of Danksk in Poland. It's from the 11th until the 25th of May. It's a meta vipassana retreat. So the first week is uh, uh, meta. The, the second week is vipassana. You can come for either one of those two weeks, or the or both. Uh, we, we're giving preference for both. We're doing this with Phil uh, Jordan's community, uh, and so uh, meta group has only five spaces for the retreat. So if you're interested in doing it, we have a sign up list. Put your name on it. I think that the, those spaces will go pretty quickly. And then we're doing a commuter retreat in Utrecht, which is four days, doing a level one in four days there. And that's uh, 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 the 28th, 29th, 30 days of September, April, June, yeah. 20, 28th, 29th, 30th, and the 1st of June. Um. Anyway, that stuff should be up on the website if it's not already pretty soon. 
Um, I think that the workshop this month is uh, how to date like a secure person. That's coming up on a Friday night toward the end of the month. We're going to uh, introduce uh, this spring or over the summer a new uh, class, which I'm calling um, Primary Exploration, which is going to talk about the exploration for meaning. And I'm going to talk, I'm going to use my uh, investigation of photography as the vehicle for that, so that uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the origins of that and, and then what that looks like. So that's what's coming up. Uh, really appreciate your practice. Uh, thank you for that. I offer the teaching freely, um, but uh, I do hope that you'll support me by making a donation that helps me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. You can find a link on the website. Uh, good to see you, and I hope to see you soon. Bye.